Hi, this is Jim Kelly. Welcome back to the Free Reads Podcast. Well, I'm into week three of my big, fat, secret project, which I am not allowed to tell anyone about, and which is why you won't be hearing any fiction this time around, unless you want to consider my ill-considered opinions as a kind of fiction. Instead, I'll be reading another of my favorite columns from the On the Net series that runs every other month in Asimov's science fiction magazine. And while I'm on the subject of Asimov's, as the holiday season looms and you're wondering what to get your favorite tech-obsessed person, why not consider a gift subscription to the finest science fiction magazine in the history of the galaxy... Uh, wait a minute. I promised there would be no out-and-out fiction, didn't I? Anyway, this installment of On the Net is called Afraid of the Darknet. It's from November of 2004. I should warn you that I veer dangerously close to ranting on occasion here, and the sarcasm drips so heavily that it might stain your iPod. As always, I'm releasing this under a Creative Commons license. As a matter of fact, this column is sort of about Creative Commons. So listen up! And for those of you waiting patiently for some science fiction, bear with me. I still plan to read my novel, Look Into the Sun, sometime after the first of the year. Meanwhile, here's Afraid of the Darknet. Section 1 morals. Say your kid's sister drops by for a visit. She lives on the left coast and has driven across the country to your place on the right coast to keep herself from falling asleep on the tedious stretches of I-80. She has brought along some of her CD collection. Naturally, you're interested in what she's listening to, and as you idly flip the pages of her CD binder, you notice that she owns Herbie Hancock's classic Headhunters. You yourself bought that album on vinyl back in 74, but your ex-girlfriend sat on it during a wild Halloween party in 81. You have a CD burner on your computer, and your sister is amenable, so you make yourself a copy. Is that wrong? What if it actually was your girlfriend's record? What if you never owned the album yourself? but you've just recently discovered Herbie's funk years. Say you bought a membership to Con Jose, the 2002 World Science Fiction Convention, and you wanted to cast an informed vote for the Hugo Award. So, of course, you wanted to read Ted Chang's memorable Hell is the Absence of God. But you couldn't manage to round up a copy of Starlight 3, where it originally appeared. Not to worry. That summer, you learned that FictionWise was running a promotion that allowed you to download Ted's story free for a limited time. You did, and you loved it so much that you voted for it, and hallelujah, it won the Hugo. As a matter of fact, you were so impressed that you went out and bought a copy of Ted's collection, Stories of Your Life and Others. Now, back to your sister whose Herbie Hancock album you just copied. She's read Ted, and naturally you'd like to educate her about the cutting edge of SF 
and so you offer to lend her your book. She declines because she remembers how snippy you got when she misplaced your autographed first edition copy of Firewatch by Connie Willis, which is currently worth well north of 200 bucks. Anyway, you tell her at the very least she can download the free fiction-wise file of Hell is the Absence of God onto her palm tungsten, except the promotion is long since over, and now fiction-wise is charging $1.25 for that story. Is that wrong? What if you lend her your own palm tungsten to read it on? Or if you Xerox the story from your own personal copy of the book and gave it to her? Just for the record, I don't have a sister. Section 2. D.R.M. Some people think that the answer to all these questions is digital rights management, or D.R.M. Basically, digital rights management seeks to use a technological stick, hardware, or software to enforce copyright. It's D.R.M., that prevents you from making backup copies of your collection of the extended Lord of the Rings DVDs. But what is convenient for Peter Jackson can be damned inconvenient for you. So be sure to wash your hands before you pick up that fragile optical disc. In 1998, Congress passed the controversial Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA. The intent of this law was to provide new protection for content creators. Content creators? You know, the folk formerly known as artists, like Steven Spielberg, an outcast, and me. Among other things, the law makes it illegal to disable DRM. The DMCA mandates, No person shall manufacture, import, offer to the public, provide, or otherwise traffic in any technology, product, service, device, component, or part thereof that is primarily designed or produced for the purposes of circumventing a technological measure that effectively controls access to a work protected under this title. If you think about it, this is like passing a law against using your VCR to tape that episode of Star Trek Enterprise you'll miss when you're on vacation. Worse, it makes a criminal of anyone who even dares to create a digital equivalent of a VCR even if it is never used to copy anything. In case you're wondering, DRM has long since arrived in ebook publishing. All of the major ebook readers have formats that use encryption to prevent copying. All the commercial ebook publishers have recourse to these secure formats, at least for some titles. So, hack William Gibson at your peril. You may recall. Last time, I pointed you at a talk about ebooks given by our own Corey Doctorow, a frequent contributor to these pages. Corey's day job is with the Electronic Freedom Foundation, the watchdog organization which advocates for free expression in the digital age. As an EFF spokesperson, Corey has been a critic of DRM Think for some time. You can weigh his reasoning by clicking over to a speech he gave to the Microsoft Research Group in June of last year. In it, he makes several cogent arguments, i.e., that DRM systems don't work, that they're bad for society, 
that they're bad for business and that they're bad for artists. Now, since I happen to be an artist, um, content creator, this last point compels my attention. Are DRM schemes hurting my career? I suppose the answer depends on how one defines a career. Is my career the business model through which I earn the princely sums, not which I am paid to commit prose in public? Is it the collection of all the sentences I've ever typed that have gone on to be published, either in ink or in digits, even if they are now out of print? Is my career the size of my readership, even if many of you have just stumbled across my stuff here in the pages of Asimov's? Or is it my reputation among readers who remember my work and would seek out other Kelly stories if they weren't too hard to acquire? The way I see it, readers and rep are what really matters to a writer. Dollars should follow from a satisfied readership, although exactly how this happens in these times of technological and economic turmoil is not immediately apparent, alas. I do believe that the net has compromised 20th century notions of intellectual property, and no amount of DRM shenanigans can turn back the copyright clock. Or as Corey puts it, technology that disrupts copyright does so because it simplifies and cheapens creation, reproduction, and distribution. The existing copyright businesses exploit inefficiencies in the old production, reproduction, and distribution system, and they'll be weakened by the new technology. But new technology always gives us more art with a wider reach. That's what tech is for. Section 3. Darknet But don't take the word of a couple of tech-struck skiffy guys that DRM is doomed and copyright must be reformed. In 2002, four computer scientists working for Microsoft, Peter Biddle, Paul Englund, Marcus Pianato, and Brian Willman, published a research paper entitled The Darknet and the Future of Content Distribution. What they call the darknet is the entire, quotes, collection of networks and technology used to share digital content, end quote. That is to say, if you nip over to the Usenet's alt-binaries ebook news group, you're in the heart of the darknet. And despite the settlement of the lawsuit between Harlan Ellison and AOL, access to copyright-busting news groups and websites is ubiquitous. But the darknet extends beyond file sharing on the World Wide Web. If you and your hypothetical sister exchange Herbie Hancock and Ted Chang files, you're part of the darknet. And if you subscribe to Consumer Reports and then share your password with your mom so that she can check out the best new laptops, you have both gone over to the darknet. While the darknet paper can be sometimes thick going, it is well worth the effort, if only so that you can understand why these particular microsofties are so pessimistic that anything can be done to halt the spread of the darknet. Note that this paper presents the opinions of the authors only, not the official position of Microsoft. In the last section of the paper, they consider the challenges of doing business in the very near future. In many markets, the darknet will be a competitor to legal commerce. 
From the point of view of economic theory, this has profound implications for business strategy. For example, increased security, e.g. stronger DRM systems, may act as a disincentive to legal commerce. Consider an MP3 file sold on a website. This costs money, but the purchased object is as useful as a version acquired from the darknet. However, a securely DRM-wrapped song is strictly less attractive. Although the industry is striving for flexible licensing rules, customers will be restricted in their actions if the system is to provide meaningful security. This means that a vendor will probably make more money by selling unprotected objects than protected objects. In short, if you are competing with the darknet, you must compete on the darknet's own terms. That is, convenience and low cost, rather than additional security. Section 4. Exit. So, what happens to copyright if DRM fails? Don't ask me. Better minds than mine have yet to map out a future that is acceptable to artists, consumers, and business interests. Let me point one route to the future of publishing that I have chosen for at least part of the Kelly Oeuvre. The Creative Commons movement offers a way for artists to make their works freely available to the world without giving up ownership. It seeks a middle path between full copyright and the public domain. Files on my site, stories, MP3 files of audiobooks, and the archive of this column, for example, are offered for the free use of anyone under one of the many Creative Commons licenses. My own license imposes just three conditions. You must credit me as author, you must not use my work for commercial purposes, and you must not alter, transform, or build upon the works. If you're curious about the quality of Creative Commons works, check out Common Content, the home base for publishing the next generation. I certainly haven't offered everything I've written under a Creative Commons license, and I'm not advocating this path for everyone. But I sleep better at night knowing that anyone, anywhere, who wants to, can read me. And I'm not afraid of the Darknet. That's enough about the Darknet for now. Although, if you wanted to write your congressperson to complain about the DMCA, I say go for it. Next time, I'll dip way back into the archives to 2001 and reprise my thoughts on the singularity. Until then, this is Jim Kelly. Thanks for sticking with the Free Reads Podcast. <laughs>